Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 2. What do you think of my fancy red tie? Some of you think, well, he's gone back to ties. Let me explain this. You'll see a lot of uh, dads and alumni and young men walking around in white shirts and red ties today. We went through a rite of passage with our sixth grade boys. Dads did with their sons uh, this weekend. It's something the church has done for uh, well over a decade, and it's a pretty powerful thing. And so you see these young men. Now, here's what I want to tell you to notice them. What 12-year-old wants to wear a white shirt and tie? But they're wearing them to make a statement that they've made a choice to be a follower of Jesus in, the, in a very particular way as men. So when you see them in the hallway, uh, smile at them, acknowledge them, just let them know it matters because it does. And so it's a pretty cool thing. And my thanks to our student ministry team uh, who puts this together. It was a good weekend uh, spend time with, uh, with the boys. So Mark chapter 2 is where we're at. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here at the church. And we're on this uh, journey of discovery through the life of Jesus we're calling the gospel. The gospel means good news. You'll see depicted behind me on the stage design the highs and lows and differing colors. And what that means is the trajectory of the image behind me shows that Jesus' life was not a straight plane. There were highs, there were lows, there were tragedies, there were great triumphs. The colors indicate the different seasons or movements of Jesus' life. So if you joined us on Resurrection Sunday and decided to come back and journey with us, we're glad you did. You are always welcome here. And we want you to know it's not too late to be a part of what we're doing here as we're trying to discover who Jesus is and learn about him. There was a period of arrival followed by a period of obscurity where nobody knew who this man was. And then we entered into a season of recognition where Jesus began to reveal more and more and the crowds began to get larger and larger when they began to understand who exactly he was. I'd like to open this morning uh, by posing to you a couple of questions to have you think through with me. What is the greatest benefit that Christianity offers the world? What is the greatest benefit that this movement of believers you and I are a part of, this thing called Christianity, what is the greatest benefit it brings the world? Is it discovering our purpose for living? Is it an ethical approach to life? Is it a sense of tranquility and peace? And the answer is, yes, those are all scriptural. Those are all a part of what God promises those who follow him. But I'd suggest this morning that it's not the greatest need. The greatest need is to experience the power of God on your own, within your own. It's to know God personally. It's to understand the freedom that he brings. And then understanding our purpose, the ethics of life, and finding peace are a byproduct of that. The second question uh, I'm going to ask you this morning is a question I don't like to ask. It plays into the stereotype of preachers that we are going to shame you, guilt you, uh, manipulate you, and then by doing that, we're going to get you in a position where you have to do what we say. And I want to tell you up front, those of you who know me, I hope you can attest to this. And those of you that don't know me well enough yet, I want to give you my word. I have no intention of ever asking you to do anything I'm going to only show you what God has asked you to do. Then I'm out of the middle. And it comes down to a relationship that you have with God. And we have it together. The beauty of God's plan is each one of us follows Jesus 
on our own, but we follow him with others who help us become better at what we're doing and who we want to become. So the question that I'm going to ask you that's a little stereotypical is, what sends people to hell? If hell by definition is a place where there is no God and God has left us to our own devices, what sends people to hell? Some might say, well, God sends people to hell and that's not true. Nobody will go to hell who has not chosen to. Pure and simple. By rejecting God, you choose to say, I want a life with no God. I want to be left alone. So God doesn't send anybody to hell, we choose it. And it's not just our sin. It's not just sin alone that sends us to hell. It's unforgiven sin. Let there be no mistake. God has given a measure by which we can be saved from the sins we committed against him. And if we don't accept it, we're choosing to remain in the hell that we're in. And it alienates us from God's presence. But I want to be clear. I want to defend God. God's not like a God with OCD who can't be anywhere near sin, so he just throws everything away because it freaks him out. It's it's not God. Our God is merciful and he's kind, isn't he? Our God loves us and pursues us, doesn't he? So he's not so weirded out by our sin that he dismisses us. But remember, every time we sin, we're telling God, leave me alone. Stand out of my life. And with that reality, we choose hell. You see, hell will be occupied by people whose sins have never been forgiven, even though there was a means provided by God himself. In fact, some of my favorite passages, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25 says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. For my own sake, and remember your sins no more. Did you catch that? God said, the reason I forgive your sins is for me as much as it is for you. I want this. I don't want us alienated and angry. I I want to forgive you. God's not in heaven going, oh, you found the magic button and the door open and you got in. Our God's like, no, I blew the door down so you could come in. And Acts chapter 13 Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. He came to meet our greatest need. So today I want to look at the text, and we're going to do a little bit different. We're going to take this kind of like a scene in the life of Jesus, because that's exactly what it is. And we're going to talk about the setting, the action, and the reaction, because every narrative has that. It has the context that took place, the setting. It has the action that took place around Jesus and the reaction to what Jesus said or does. That's how we're going to look at it. And instead of reading all the text and then dissecting it, I'm just going to walk through the text this morning in just a different approach and ask you to follow along with me as we do so. We'll begin in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. We're just going to look at four words to start with a few days later. Now, the reason I want to do it this way is because if you joined us last week in the celebration of the resurrection, we talked about the gospel in its totality. But in the previous weeks, we've led up to this text in the gospel of Mark. You see, a few days later simply means that Jesus had returned to this town called Capernaum in Galilee. It was on the sea or near the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus was spending his time in that region and going into Jerusalem, but going back to there. And he was staying with Peter and his family. And we remember a couple of weeks ago that he was preaching in the synagogue in this town of Capernaum. And while he was preaching, a man who was possessed by a demon began to to call him down and challenge him. Son of David, son of God, why are you here? Why are you doing this? And Jesus cast that demon out. And then Jesus went to Peter's house and Peter's mother-in-law was sick. 
And he went to Peter's house and he healed his mother-in-law. And the crowd began to gather because it was the Sabbath. And between sundown and sundown, 24 hours, they would not leave their homes, but they would stay in a remembrance of God. And at the end of the Sabbath, they went out of their homes, bringing the sick and the demon-possessed and the struggling to Jesus. And if you remember, Jesus then went, that night, he left the crowd and he went up into the time of the wilderness. He went with God and he just spent time. He did this repeatedly. When the world was draining on him, he got himself in the presence of God and refocused who he was, listened to the will of God and responded to it. So when Mark says in verse 1, a few days later, all of that is what was taking place. And if we take the Bible out of its context, out of its setting, we sometimes miss the richest parts of what it means for us. So let's go back and read verses 1 and 2. A few days later, when Jesus had again entered Capernaum. This was after he'd gone into the wilderness. He came back. The people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Crowds began to gather. You'll notice as we went from the period of obscurity to the period of recognition that one of the hindrances to Jesus was his inability to do what he came to do because of the crowds. Now, we think if you gather a crowd, that must mean you're somebody. But the crowd that gathered around Jesus was distinct. In fact, he often saw the crowds as not an annoyance, but it could take him off track. And Mark chapter 1, we read this a few weeks ago, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. Jesus didn't just want to be the, the monkey that danced to the music. He didn't want to be the one that just healed all the time. That wasn't why he came. He came so that he could proclaim the gospel that God is even bigger than your physical needs. And we'll find in a few weeks that as the crowds gathered, they expected Jesus to perform for them rather than them to follow him. So the first point I want to make this morning that comes from my, my study is this. Crowds don't indicate disciples. Just because you're in the crowd following Jesus doesn't mean you are following Jesus. Millions of people gathered last week around the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who will not get up this morning and worship him again. Crowds don't guarantee discipleship. Crowds don't identify followers. In fact, you know you're a follower of Jesus when you're the only one following Jesus, when you're the only one going in the opposite direction of the crowds. Because when you read about the crowds, as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record them in our study, when you hear the word crowds, I believe the authors of the Gospels are telling us something. Because in the crowds were the religious leaders trying to kill him. In the crowd were people that were trying to trap something he said and use it against him to make him stop. Crowds will never in the Bible indicate discipleship. In fact, one of my favorite texts in all the Bible is John chapter 6, where Jesus chased away a crowd. He preached one sermon, and close to 7,000 people walked away. I've had some bad ones, nothing like that. And 7,000 people abandoned him. You see, they believed in the promises of Jesus, but they didn't believe in the person of Jesus. And that's what separates being in the crowd and being a follower. Is the person of Jesus the most important thing? Or just the promise is what you're after. So then something happens. We'll go to the action. That's the setting. A crowd is gathered and they're packed in the house. And now we go to the action. Verse 3. Some men came to him bringing to him a paralytic. I don't know how paralyzed he was. We know minimally he was at least paralyzed from the waist down. Because he couldn't transport himself. 
he was carried on a pallet or a mat. It would just imagine a canvas uh, square which had some rods pushed through it that they would carry, and it would be like an ambulatory cart. And these men came, and they were trying to get to Jesus, verse 4, since they could not get to him, to Jesus because of the crowd. What I love is both Matthew and Luke also record this story. Luke tells us, I love this, and they tried. Which means they tried to get in the front door. They tried to get in the room where Jesus was. They tried to get closer to him, but the crowd kept pushing him back. Everyone wanted Jesus to do something for them. But very few people in the crowd wanted Jesus. And so these men, having tried, verse 4, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Now, picture that most houses were only like one story. Might have had a loft inside, but it was a one-story facility, and they would have steps that went up the side of the house to go up, all had flat roof. And they would go up in the evening, and they would sit. They didn't have front porches or back decks. They went up on their, the roof of their home, and they sat out in the cool of the evening. And they would also keep dry goods up there and sheltered and so forth. So these men decided just to carry their buddy up top, and because they didn't have like the structured roofs we have with shingles and plywood and all this, it would be a thatch roof. There would be cross-layered bars, and they would just lay uh, hay and straw and things over them to keep the inside of the house dry. So these guys just started tearing the roof apart to lower their friend through. Now here's a little side note for those of you who know the characters of the disciples very well. Whose home is this? I gave you a clue a little bit earlier if you were paying attention. Okay, everybody take out a piece of paper, number one to three. No, I'm sorry. (laughs) Bad habit. Okay, so it's Peter's home. Now, when Peter gets upset, according to the Bible, he pulls out a sword and cuts off a dude's ear. How'd it like to be in Peter's home when the crowd's pressing in and all of a sudden someone starts blowing through the roof? That's a side note, but that had to be really funny. So there you go. So all of a sudden, Jesus is teaching and straw starts floating down and he's like, Peter, don't. All right? And in that moment, verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And right now, you ought to stop and go, what? Guy's paralyzed. They're lowering him in a mat through the roof. The crowd's like, well, I didn't think of that. Everyone's trying to get to Jesus, and here this guy has Jesus' attention. And Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven? That's like me working all day to get in the presence of Jesus, and he says, here's a comb. I'd be like, what? Jeez. Thanks, I think right? So this guy doesn't, he comes to Jesus because he wants healed. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And sometimes when you study the scriptures, understand this. Sometimes Jesus does something unusual to change what we're thinking about, not because he's not thinking it. So when he says your sins are forgiven, he's done something amazing in this moment. It says at first though, in verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, That's a key part of this whole story. If you've never underlined that or highlighted that, don't forget that. Put it in your notes. He saw their faith by simply tearing through the roof, lowering their friend down. Jesus saw something in that moment that Mark recorded. And so he said, because this was a moment of faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw that they they would have done anything to get to him. And that was enough for him to credit his faith that nothing would stop them. No inconvenience, no obstacle, no lack of effort, no lack of expense. They would have to replace the roof. They would do it. 
it was that important. And every one of us has had a moment in our life where it didn't matter. We would move heaven and earth to get to what we needed. Amen? It might be a struggling child, a sick parent. It doesn't matter. We will do whatever we've got to do to do whatever we can. And Jesus saw that. And for some reason, I I don't know specifically, but it's not insignificant that Mark said he saw their faith. So now we have the setting. Now we've seen the action. Let's look at the reaction. The most important thing I want to tell you this morning is this. Jesus' authority is limitless where there is faith. The authority of Jesus has no limit where there's faith. And I think right now most of you are going, okay, I can, I'll buy that. I can agree with that. But if that is true, then the opposite side of that is also as true. That where there is no faith, Jesus' authority is limited. That makes us more uncomfortable, doesn't it? Like we could stop Jesus from being Jesus. No, no, it's his choice, not ours. But let's be crystal clear in the room today that if Jesus limits his responses to our faith, our lack of faith will limit Jesus' responses. And herein lies what I think Mark taught me from the gospel. You see, his authority is completely unlimited, but he has chosen to say that your faith will open up my power in your life. And without your faith, I am going to choose not to respond. In fact, there's other passages of scripture that said Jesus went into certain towns and he couldn't perform miracles because there was no belief in him. Notice there was crowds and there was energy and there was anticipation and there was desire, but there was no faith. The fact that our faith limits Jesus' power is a fascinating thing. And to a certain degree, I wish God hadn't done it that way, but in his brilliance, he exactly did it that way. So understanding that, verse 6 and 7, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? He's performing all of these miracles. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, what in the world? Do you know someone so well that you can tell what they're thinking even when they deny it? There's a girl sitting in this room who's known me for 33 years. And she'll say to me, stop. And I'm like, what? I know what you're thinking. You do not. And inside I'm going, she does. <laughs> She's a wizard. No, no, she has unfortunately 33 years of experience with me. And she can tell by body posture and facial expressions and whether I look at her. She knows, and I know her as well. I know certain things. We're like, she's in a mood, right? It only happens once a year, trust me, but she's in a mood. And one of the boys will start doing something. I look at him like. Because when she goes off, I can't save you. So Jesus is in this room and the Pharisees, she's not that bad. When the Pharisees are there. Anybody want to go to lunch? Because I'm free. Okay, back to sermon. Dug that ditch. I'm going to live in it. It says the teachers of the law were sitting there and Mark says, thinking to themselves. They didn't say a word. And Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking because he had just positioned himself under two options. Either he's a blasphemer or he's God. 
And they were going, did he just say he was God? And Jesus is coy. He's subtle. He doesn't say, he doesn't give them the rock to throw back at him. But he just shows them the rock. And they're like, well, only God can forgive sins. And they're thinking themselves, and they're wondering, you know, who... Who can forgive sins but God? And here's the premise. Let's say there's a room uh, off stage here that, uh, that we prepare and have a time of prayer in and before people come out here that serve on a stage on a Sunday morning. It's just called a green room, but it's a place for us to, to hang out in between our service. And let's say I went back there and Drake, the, our junior high pastor who did communion this morning, and Elijah who with Madison led us in worship. Let's say I walked back in there and Elijah's holding his mouth and his lips bleeding. I'm like, what happened? And he said, Drake just punched me. Like, Drake, dude, what's going on? I go, well, I, they explain the whole scene, and I'm like, Drake, did you hit him? He goes, yeah, and I walk over to Drake, and I go, Drake, listen to me carefully. I forgive you. So it's settled. We're going to move on. Would Elijah have a bit of a beef? <laughs> Could Elijah go, dude, you can't forgive me. He didn't hit you. I go, no, no, it's my role. I'm the senior minister. I forgive you. Elijah goes, I'm going to hit you. Because I can't forgive Drake for hitting Elijah. Only Elijah can hit Drake or forgive him. I didn't even mean to say that. You get, anyway, it's over. Hopefully you got the point. When Jesus says, I forgive you, their thought is not, what an uppity kid. Their thought is, no, 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 only Sin is against God, so only God can forgive. Did you see that Jesus just showed them the rock that they would eventually pick up and try to kill him with? He said, no, no. I'm not going to say it that clean, but I am God. Pilate said, they say you're God. And Jesus goes, it's as you say. Pilate's like, I didn't want to say it. Jesus said, no, no, you've, you're, you're reading this correctly. And then verse 8. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Because he was hearkening them back to the Old Testament. First Chronicles chapter 28. Listen to one of the descriptors of God. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intents of the thoughts. When he, I don't know that he knew exactly what they were thinking, but he knew the mind of man. And he told them what they were thinking, and they knew for a moment. They had seen him show authority over disease. They had seen him show authority over demons. They had seen him correct falsehoods with real truth from the Bible that convicted them. And they remained in the crowd, but they were not followers. And now Jesus ups the game. He says in verse 9, Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? It's a big question. So is it easier to heal somebody than it is to forgive sins? Or is it easier to forgive sins than to heal somebody? See, in a Jewish world, they often believed that illness and tragedy like this was sin-related. You've read that. I tend to believe that the cause of this particular paralysis was sin-related, or I don't think Jesus would have drawn this together. So maybe the kid was foolish in his youth, or or the man was foolish in his youth, and he's paralyzed because he did something ridiculous or even possibly sinful. So because that's what they were thinking, Jesus capitalized on it. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
he said to the paralytic, verse 11, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. We go, wow. Now, if you're anything like me and you grew up in church and you've heard this story several hundred times in your lifetime or so it seems, you're immediately like, Jesus healed the dude. No, no, I want you to stop and think of what happened the moments before he healed him. He said to a paralyzed man, get up. He can't take up your mat. He can't go home. He can't without help. And Jesus didn't say to his friends, get him up, pick up his mat for him and carry him home. He said, you get up, you pick up your mat and you go home. And if that man doesn't have faith in Jesus, what does he never try to do? Get up, pick up his mat, and go home. But he has faith in Jesus. He doesn't have faith in the miracle. He has faith in the man. And his faith and his obedience are necessary. Please understand that. Obedience to your faith is necessary. You may want Jesus, but do you want him or do you want what he does for you? You see, the benefits of Christianity are numerous in Scripture, but they're only through Jesus. And you can't have the blessings of Christianity until you have the Christ. And in this moment, Jesus has drawn the line forever. He called the man to do what he could not do to prove to him that Jesus could. See, miracle workers are found in the Old Testament. Moses performed miracles. Elijah performed miracles. Elisha performed miracles. But none of them could forgive sins. So Jesus was showing us that he wasn't a miracle worker. He was God on earth, restoring everything that sin had broken. Verse 12, this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And you look at the end of the story, and you go, yay, it's just everyone's happy. No, no, no. You can be amazed with Jesus and not follow him. You can be impressed by Jesus and not follow him. You can believe Jesus performed miracles and not follow him. Ask Judas. Ask the Pharisees. Ask some of the people that Jesus healed. In Matthew's recounting, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 8, he said, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to church men. Do you see what they thought he was? Just a man. And that is why, in many places, Jesus could not perform miracles because they did not see the hope of the gospel They saw a man who was useful to them. And I wonder in the church every week, how many of us gather in the crowd and then have to be carried home? Or how many of us gather in the crowd believing Jesus was a pretty special dude and not the son of God? Because he said, which is harder to forgive sins, which is what you need, or to heal the body? It's simple, I do both. Because our sin is against God, it's not against one another even though it affects all of us. Our hope is that God through Jesus Christ has provided the means by which all of our sin is forgiven. Because unfortunately, hell will not just be filled with bad people. It will be filled with good people with unforgiven sin. And Jesus came to show us there's a big difference between what he came to do in the temporary miracle and what he came to do in the eternal miracle of forgiveness. So he says to every single one of us in the room, and this is where we place ourselves in the story, are you in the crowd or are you following? 
And then when Jesus says to you, get up and you can't, pick up your mat and you can't and go home and you feel like I can't if someone doesn't help me. Do you believe in the power of Jesus Christ, the authority of the one over the demons, over illness, over nature, and over everything? Do you believe when Jesus tells you to get up, pick up your mat, and walk that you can? For some of you, you're just meeting him for the first time. And he's doing something in you right now. Through a song, through a thought, through this passage of scripture, and you know something is changing in you. Listen to his voice. Get up, pick up your mat, and follow me. Don't just lay there saying, my life's been unfair. I know, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Say, I did this to myself and I can't forgive myself. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. I used to follow you and then I got in the crowd and I stopped following you. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Because only when you do will you truly understand who Jesus is. He's that good. He's that kind. And praise God, he's that real. So church, let's get up. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.